KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. An Afghan woman struggled in San Diego one year after the U.S. withdrawal. They had goals, dreams, but right now they said, we do not know about our tomorrow. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The Midway Rising Redevelopment Plan gets the mayor's recommendation. And the reason is pretty simple, actually. A Midway Rising proposed the largest number of subsidized, low-income, affordable homes compared to all of the other contenders. Middle and high school students and their parents start getting used to later school start times. And why Dominican baseball players are often caught up in doping scandals. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. A year after America ended its longest war, thousands of Afghans are settling into new lives inside the United States. Though, advocates say the U.S. is not doing enough, especially to help women who remained behind and are now under threat from the Taliban. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story. Masuma Ismail Zada and her five sisters evacuated from Afghanistan August 30th last year. They were allowed only one backpack each. She takes me through their Mira Mesa home. She's embarrassed that their house is furnished mainly by donations. Right now, when I see the newcomers, new Afghan comers, uh, I do my best to help them because I, I can feel whatever they are feeling right now. Their father died a month before. With no male relative living with them, they were virtually trapped in their home as the Taliban took over Afghanistan. It's something like a nightmare. Maybe for the people who are living in the U.S., it, it looks like a movie, but for us, every minute was like a horror film. We didn't know what will happen next. Before they fled, she taught English literature at the local university. Occasionally, in the middle of the night now, Esmailazada holds virtual classes with her former students because English has been removed from the curriculum, and women are often barred from class. They had goals dreams, but right now they said, we do not know about our tomorrow. What should we do? They, they, they are really broken, yeah. She now works with La Mesa Community Health Centers, helping other recent arrivals. The transition to the U.S. is especially tough for Afghan women. Her father stressed education. One sister is a neurosurgeon, the other an architect. Though many of the women Esmeralzada works with cannot read or write. Some of the organization, when they help, they say that, okay, you have to uh, start working. But how? When they do not have any knowledge, when they do not know the language, when they do not even have that self-confidence to work. In the hectic last days of the American presence in Afghanistan, the U.S. prioritized getting out people who had worked with the U.S. 
And Devin Cohn with Refugees International says the focus was on those who might qualify for special immigration visas or SIVs. Because of the work that, that these women did, they were at risk by the Taliban, yet they didn't work for the U.S. government. So there really was no way, and there's still very few ways for them to get to the U.S. Sean Van Diver's group Afghan Evac formed to coordinate a range of vet groups who were working to get people out of Afghanistan. One year out, he's worried public attention is fading. And right now it's a really awful situation. And what's really important is that the world doesn't stop talking about this, because as soon as the world stops talking about it, that's when we're going to see the uptick. And what we saw when Ukraine kicked off was that there was an uptick in raids on houses, in beatings, in atrocities occurring. The group supports the recently introduced Afghan Adjustment Act, which would help Afghans caught in immigration limbo. Masuma Esmalzadeh's sister, Golsum Mismalzadeh, worked with USAID, and not directly with Americans. But it was enough to get her family on the radar for their last-minute evacuation. Glad to be safe, she's also sad that she's now part of a brain drain forced by the Taliban. It made me sad, and it's it just telling me that my education was useless. Then I cannot use it for my own people, for my country. So that's that's the thing that made me disappointed and hopeless. Without some other permanent solution, the sisters now have two years to make it through the backlogged immigration process. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Now, let me start off by asking you, what is the two-year immigration process that you mentioned? Is that for a green card for Masuma and her sisters so they can work in this country? Well, you know, there have been some 70,000 people who came to the U.S. after the end of the war. And, you know, many of them have no real permanent status, including the two sisters I spoke to. They basically have to go through the asylum process, which gives them two years. Now, that process is extremely backlogged. Advocates have uh, tried to assure people that they won't be sent back to Afghanistan if they can't make it through the process. But it's a real legal limbo. And uh, there's a it's a genuine source of stress among uh, Afghans here in, in San Diego. People ask if, if, you know, they'll be deported if they can't find a job. You know, and many are also uh, special immigration visas, the people who worked with the U.S. or U.S. contractors. A bunch of those people didn't finish the process while they were still in Afghanistan. So they're sort of lumped in here as well. Now, just recently, Amnesty International reported that the Taliban has once again cracked down on women's freedoms in Afghanistan, restricting education and work, reinstating the burqa dress code. Does that make the immigration of Afghan women a higher priority for the U.S.? Well, so far, it it hasn't. I'm told the Biden administration is starting to look more closely at women who are in danger because they work Uh, openly in Afghan society and to open up Afghan society. We as a nation encouraged them to do this. We said it was it lined up with our values. But then the U.S. evacuation was so chaotic last year that they weren't really prioritized. And um, last year, some of the women who did actually get out, they, they ended up being sent to other countries. And I'm told, at least for right now, that that really hasn't changed. What do advocates say the U.S. should be doing to help women still in Afghanistan? 
Well, allow women who did get out to come to the U.S. if they want to come to the U.S. Um, you know, they changed the law to prioritize women. Some of this has to be done through Congress. Even the special immigration visas have to be renewed every year. So they, they want some, some even more permanent status for them. And for women uh, who are still in the country, you know, governments and aid groups who are working with the Taliban should prioritize having women as part of these groups so women aren't don't sort of fall off the table. They should continue to use women to distribute aid within Afghanistan where, whenever possible. You know, and a lot of this does depend on the Taliban. The U.S. has really only limited leverage in Afghanistan at this point. Is it the Taliban that's making it difficult for people to leave the country or is the problem with American immigration restrictions? It seems to be both. You know, right now, the airport at Kabul is not fully open. That limits the number of flights that can get out. You know, the U.S. could also open up other processing centers around the world to make things go smoothly once someone does, in fact, get out. Most of the people who came to San Diego seem to have arrived right around February, and it's slowed dramatically since then. And it could be slow going for a while. You know, again, some of the concerns around people who uh, did get out but have since been uh, sent to other countries, even though they wanted to come to the United States. One of the analogies that I use is that the U.S. took in thousands of Vietnamese after the, the war in Vietnam, but most of them didn't come out until like the late 70s after the U.S. reached an agreement with uh, the Vietnamese government. So we could be in for a very long multi-year process. Tell us more about the Afghanistan Adjustment Act introduced in Congress. What would it do? Again, you know, it gives it would give a, a permanent status and a, and a path to citizenship for those who uh, came in at the last minute last year without any real official status. It would uh, create a, a vetting process uh, as well, so that there would be a, there would be a much more formal process now at the back end. Though it doesn't help the SIVs, you know, the special immigration visas, the people who worked with the U.S., they still have to renew each year, from what I'm told. And there is a separate piece of legislation that they're looking at just for that. Now, you mentioned that Masuma and her sisters are highly educated. One is a neurosurgeon, the other an architect. Is there any chance that they could continue those professions here in the U.S.? They have the problem that many Afghans have when they come to this country. You have people who were professionals, doctors and lawyers, but, um, you know, they have to start from scratch. They're, they have to drive, you know, Uber at the moment. Maybe they have to work in a lab while they uh, try to go back to school and work on their degrees. Their, their degrees won't transfer in many cases here one to one. People are going back to school. Masuma is going back to school. Her sister has talked about going back to school. As the, as the sisters end up working with people who are here in, in, in San Diego, what they do is they just encourage people to sort of get one foot under the other, try to get a job here, try to start small, and then work your way up from there. The virtual classes that Masuma holds with her former students must be very dangerous for the women taking those classes back in Afghanistan. Why does Masuma continue with them? Well, I mean, like she said, she wants to give them a sense of hope. And, you know, it gives her somewhat a connection back to her to her old life in Afghanistan where she was teaching people English. You know, these are, you know, both men and women who are in her, their, their, her class. And it's hard to say why why they what their motivations are other than they don't want to lose what they have learned maybe they think someday uh, things will change in afghanistan maybe they think they'll have to emigrate at one point and they'll they'll simply need those skills so it gives gives them some hope but at the moment it's um it's very scary and it's very dark i've been speaking with kpbs military reporter steve walsh steve thank you thanks maureen 
Mayor Todd Gloria has made his choice in the second time around process of selecting a redevelopment plan for a big portion of the Midway District. Gloria is recommending the Midway Rising Plan for the 48-acre city-owned sports arena property. The plan includes a new arena as well as more than 4,000 new residential units with the addition of retail and open space. The mayor's recommendation will be presented to the San Diego City Council, which has the final say in the matter. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. There were three finalists in competition for the Midway redevelopment. Why is the mayor recommending Midway Rising? Well, this has been the mayor's top choice since at least the spring when the city staff last gave an update to the city council. And the reason is pretty simple, actually. A Midway Rising proposed the largest number of subsidized, low-income, affordable homes compared to all of the other contenders. Uh, And there's a state law called the Surplus Land Act that requires the city to give uh, preference to the project with the most uh, subsidized, low-income, affordable housing. And the last thing that Mayor Gloria wants to do is to make a decision that the state would then later invalidate for failure to comply with the state law. Now, we have a rendering of what the Midway Rising plan looks like on our website, kpbs.org. And it looks like the new arena is a pretty dominant structure in the redevelopment. Yeah, it's 450,000 square feet. Uh, It's got seating or would have seating for between 14,500 and 16,500 people. Maybe a little bit bigger than the current arena, Pachanga Arena, which is the official name of the venue, but not dramatically bigger. And it's also noteworthy that the placement of the arena is on the southeast edge of the property. Again, this is 48 acres uh, in the Midway District, mostly surface parking. And the aim from Midway Rising is to locate the arena closer to the Old Town Transit Center, where you have Amtrak, coaster trains, the trolley, several bus lines all converge there. Uh, The walk from that transit center to the uh, property where this arena would be is about three quarters of a mile, so not too far to go on foot. Um, But honestly, it's not a very pleasant walk. Uh, It's not super pedestrian friendly. The streets are just not designed for pedestrians or cyclists in mind. Uh, So something that I'll be looking out for in the finer details of this plan is how the city or the developer plans to improve that connection to make it a truly uh, transit and pedestrian oriented uh, place. And what kind of residential units are included in the plan? Are they all apartments? Yes, 4,250 apartments. Uh, More than half of those would have restricted rents where you have to earn below a certain income threshold to qualify for the home and you would not pay more than what you can officially afford, which is 30% of your income, according to you know state or federal uh, guidelines. 2,000 of those apartments are low-income affordable housing, uh, and 250 of them are affordable for middle-income households, and then the remaining 2,000 would be market-rate housing. The height of the proposed apartment complexes opens up another issue for the redevelopment plan, and voters are going to have to weigh in again, aren't they? Yeah, so voters approved a ballot measure in 2020 that would have lifted the 30-foot height limit in the Midway District. 
this is the coastal height limit in, uh, that was approved by voters in the 70s uh, that applies to all land outside of downtown that is west of Interstate 5, and Midway is just west of that freeway. But a group sued the city, arguing that the city did not do sufficient uh, analysis of the environmental impacts of allowing taller buildings in this very urbanized area where there's um, you know, not a lot of environment to protect. Uh, so the city lost that case at the Superior Court level. Uh, it's appealing that decision to the Court of Appeal, but at the same time as, as it's pursuing that legal strategy, it's also asking voters the same question it did two years ago. And the hope is that having done a more thorough environmental analysis of uh, raising a height limit, they can finally get this approved legally and get the project done. In fact, the whole process of selecting a developer for the Midway District has been done before. Remind us why the city had to go through this again. Mayor, former Mayor Kevin Faulkner pursued another redevelopment process in the final year of his term, 2020. And uh, he had selected a developer, a plan, uh, just like Mayor Gloria has done now. Uh, but the state found that the city should have followed the Surplus Land Act, and it didn't. Uh, the, there was some ambiguity at the time. The Surplus Land Act had just been updated by the state legislature, and uh, there was uh, the, this, it wasn't clear to the city at the time whether it applied to when a city leases public land as opposed to owning, you know, when it would actually sell public land. So in this deal, the city intends to retain ownership of the land and uh, sign a ground lease with the developer. Uh, the state decided that the city should have followed the Surplus Land Act, uh, and it didn't. And so the city then had to restart this process all over again. I think Gloria was certainly frustrated that he had to start it all over, but he is now uh, benefiting from being able to choose the project that he prefers. And the result is, while it has been delayed by a couple of years, we are also getting a whole lot more affordable housing out of this land than we would have under the, the deal that was preferred by Faulkner several years ago. When will the Midway Rising Plan be presented to the city council? It'll go to a council committee on September 8th is the, the plan, and then a vote by the full city council on September 13th. So it's coming up in a couple weeks. Can the other two contenders still present their cases to the council? They can, and I would be very surprised if they didn't. I think they were very likely to go, um, you know, make their case to the city council in a sort of last-ditch effort. But it would be a tough sell, I think, for the other projects to try and claim that they are, in fact, the ones that will more closely follow state law. Now, if approved, what will be the next steps in the process? The city will have to negotiate the details. Um, one of the biggest questions is how much will it earn from this deal? Uh, how much will the developers pay the city for the privilege of leasing this land and, and building and profiting from it? Uh, if the city decides to accept a discount on the land, uh, it could then perhaps um, require the developers to uh, finance the affordable housing portions of the project on their own, as opposed to having to rely on local subsidies. And uh, so that's, I think, a really big question we'll have to watch out for it. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And Andrew, thank you. My pleasure, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. As schools continue to open across San Diego for the fall semester, there is a new state law now in effect, pushing the start times of many middle and high schools later in the morning. The late start law is supposed to help young people find more natural sleep patterns, which helps in brain development. Here's what Rancho Bernardo High School senior Ari Kanick had to say about the change. I think the late start is actually a very good idea because we have so much course load, our work, we're very pressured. Research shows the time change improves student performance and also helps a kid's physical health. There's even evidence that shows more sleep lowers the number of car accidents. Here to tell us more about why this change is being made in California schools is Sachin Panda, professor at the Salk Institute and author of the book, The Circadian Code. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me here. So why is moving middle and high school start times later a good idea in your view? Yeah, actually, during this time of human development, the middle schoolers and high schoolers tend to go to sleep later at night, and also their internal biological clock tells them to wake up slightly later in the morning. So by having a delayed school start time, we allow the students to catch up anywhere between 30 minutes to one hour of extra sleep. And this sleep improvement also ends up in fewer car crashes in the morning. And more importantly, it improves class attendance and graduation rates. And these results have been seen in many studies in the U.S. as well as in other countries. Many people might not be familiar with the circadian rhythm. Please explain what that term means and why is it important? Yeah, circadian rhythms are the daily timetables of everything in our body um, that relates to brain functions, immune functions, metabolic functions, and also repair and rejuvenation. So that means everything in our body has a perfect time to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. And in this specific context, we know that sleep is very important and sleep happens at nighttime. We cannot compensate for nighttime loss of sleep by napping too much at daytime. And when we sleep at night, our brain cells strengthen their connection with each other. And as a result, what we learn during daytime can be consolidated and stored better at night during our sleep. So that leads to potential improvement in learning and memory. How will we know whether the late start at schools actually does help health and the performance of students? What will be measurable to determine that? Yes. So there are many studies, particularly one study where I was involved was in Seattle School District, where two different schools start time was delayed by an hour back in 2017. And what and we went back and objectively measured, particularly attendance and grades, because that's what immediately matters to uh, both students, parents, and also teachers. What we found was on an average, these students slept 34 minutes longer. And people usually think that when students sleep more, then they're studying less. 
But in fact, these students also had better attendance, their tardiness went down significantly, and their grades improved by up to 5%. There are some long-term studies done in Europe up to four years of the impact of longer sleep time or delayed school start time, and they have also found similar results. Are there other sleep-related changes that you think we should make? So sleep has been important for many things. When our sleep is disrupted, then we also see more incidences of acid reflux, bloating, which may be just inconvenience, but we also see increased incidences of irritable bowel syndrome, which many pediatricians will say that the incidence of IBS and gut diseases are actually alarmingly increasing among teenagers, specifically middle schoolers and high schoolers. So we should be mindful, we should keep an eye to see whether this late school start time improves their gut health. And second is, we also know that sleeping less increases our craving for unhealthy junk food, and that is related to increased obesity and insulin resistance that is also rising among teenagers. And many uh, pediatricians will also uh, mention this. So it will be also interesting to see whether we can combine delayed school start time with some health education at school to improve our kids' health. Because at the end of the day, we really need healthy kids for a healthy future. I have been speaking with Sachin Panda, professor from the Regulatory Biology Laboratory at the Salk Institute. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We've heard about the science behind the new late start school times. Now let's get some perspective from those who are living it in real time. The Sweetwater Union High School District started the fall semester in July. Here's what parent Daryl Davis had to say about the time change. If you're rushed, you get to school, you're tired, you don't feel like doing anything, you cra- it's just, no, late starts is the business. This is what we should have been doing a long time ago. I don't know why I think they should have put everybody on banker's hours. But not everyone is as excited about the late start, which has uprooted many morning routines. Childcare has also become a problem for some families. We are joined now by Bill Walsh, principal of Castle Park Middle School in the Sweetwater District. Bill, welcome to Midday. Thank you, MG. It's a pleasure to be here. Bill, we just heard from a sleep expert who explained some of the benefits of young people getting more sleep. You have had your students back for about a month now. What differences have you noticed? You know, this has just been a wonderful uh, start to a school year. We're very excited, especially coming out of the COVID pandemic times. Things were were very, very challenging at that time. As you can imagine, uh, families were struggling and kids were struggling. And uh, even coming back last year, when we were trying to get back into the routine of school, uh, we were often very challenged with interesting behaviors and uh, just getting kids accustomed to being together again in a classroom. Uh, specifically, what we've noticed uh, with the start of this school year is that students are much more prepared for learning. They're much more ready to learn. I was very excited. I was just talking with some math teachers. We're actually opening up another section of advanced high school math here on our middle school campus because we have kids that are hungry to learn. And so we're very excited about the start of this school year for that very reason. That's great news. What have you heard directly from students about the change? Are they generally liking it? 
You know, in, in our school, most of our students are familiar with starting a little bit later than what has typically been an early start for our high schools in our district. And so um, our kids coming out recently out of the elementary school districts typically are familiar with a schedule like ours in which we start at 8.15 a.m. and end by 3.15 p.m. And so uh, for our students, it's not so much of a change. Many of the kids that get a bigger impact are at the high school level. In your experience as principal, what are some of the challenges that are facing your families that result in their kids not getting enough sleep? As our parents are challenged with technology, our our children, our students are masters of technology. And unfortunately, technology can be used in such a way that ends up being a, a huge distraction for many of our kids. And so some of what we're trying to teach our kids within our content areas, I just came out of an English class this morning and students were actually studying a research project recently that had to do with students being distracted by technology um, and how it not necessarily impacts their sleep, but impacts their performance. But definitely um, what we see is that kids that are um, on cell phones late at night, Instagramming and TikToking and all those kinds of things, trying to build connections that way, it can get away from them and it can be detrimental to their success as students. The consequence of a late start is a school day does last longer. What does that mean for sports and extracurricular activities? You know, it pushes the window on that. I know at high school, when I've talked to some of my colleagues, uh, coaches are working hard to balance the needs of their their programs with, for, for lack of a better term, the inavailability of students during the timeframes that they previously had been ready for practice and workouts and those kinds of things. I, I think our, our coaches in general are, are making do. Um, the good thing about our schools here in Sweetwater is that we're not unduly impacted because all of the school districts that have uh, that are uh, following that new state law are, are required to do the same thing, and so it pushes that window. And so I'm 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 hearing that the coaches are are looking towards other opportunities on the weekends and such break times where we can bring kids in and, and work out with them and make sure that they're ready for that those kinds of competitions. Bill, I have seen you in action, and I was there the first day of school. How do you support your parents? and students beyond the academics, the social, emotional, the rest of it. So we, uh, I'm fortunate, when I came to Castle Park Middle several years ago, we already had a very well-developed social-emotional learning component for our students in which we teach them about how their own emotions are going to be working and changing and growing over these next couple of years of their life. In addition to that, we advertise on our website as well as in parent bulletins about how we're focused on this, about teaching kids how to be just people and how to deal with those emotions and, and how to deal with things like success and failure. There used to be a concept at Castle Park Middle School that failure is not an option, but the reality is many of the things in life that are great are not achieved without walking through some coals, you know, some hot fires. And so those of us with scars to tell, you know, end up, we show that uh, you, you can be successful, you can overcome. And our parents appreciate that. We find that most of our parents are right there with us. They know the, the pressures their kids face with social media, et cetera, and, and wanting to fit in. And, and they put a lot of trust in us. And I always talk to my staff and tell them that we, we can't, as, as professionals, we can't take that trust lightly. We have to really come through with our parents and make sure that we provide great opportunities for our kids to excel. I have been speaking with Bill Walsh, principal of Castle Park Middle School in the Sweetwater School District. Thank you, Bill. Always great to speak with you. Best of luck in the new year. Yeah, my pleasure, uh, MG. Appreciate all the work that you're doing out there to bring this information to light. 
California state agencies will begin to collect lineage data from African-American employees, according to a first-in-the-nation law recently signed in Sacramento. The agencies will collect data on demographic categories, including African-American employees who are descendants of enslaved people in the United States and black employees whose ancestors were not enslaved. The request for information results from the decision by the California Reparations Task Force that reparation eligibility for black Californians should be geared toward descendants of enslaved people. State employees will not be required to provide the information, and not all reparations advocates are pleased with the lineage-based decision by the Reparations Task Force. Joining me is Chris Largson. He is the lead organizer of the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California. And Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor and privilege to be here. Thank you. Why do you believe this lineage data is important for state agencies to collect? As someone who myself is a descendant of persons who were enslaved in this country, we are a people who are a specific group of people. And we've been here for hundreds of years, 350, 400 plus years. And from a moral and a human rights perspective, we are a specific group of people and we deserve and need to be recognized as such by our own government. As I've said previously, up until this law was passed, there was no city, no county, no state agency you could go to in the state of California and say, how many African-Americans are descendants of persons who were enslaved in this country living here? What is the specific condition, specific reality of African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in this country living here? We've used in the past this very broad, very big category called Black slash African-American. And that category includes many different types of subgroups. And our subgroup is one of those in that Black or African-American category. And we have specific needs specific to our specific community, largely because, and this, this is the second reason why this is important, largely because we live with us and have within us the legacy of U.S. chattel slavery. Why is California starting with state employees in particular to provide this information? Yeah, great question. So California is starting with state employees first because the state has more control over the information that it can collect with respect to its own employees. So it was sort of the easier place to start. The state has a, something around two and a half, you know, 2.6 million employees. And so it's a great place to start. Our work, though, will, of course, be to expand this outside and beyond state employees. But it was sort of the easiest place to start. What do you think this ancestry information from African-Americans who are descendants of enslaved people. What do you believe this data will tell us? It's an interesting question because part of what we know now from some other types of information that we've collected and gathered, just not from government agencies, but from other research that has been done that also breaks down the Black and African-American subgroup by lineage, we know that within the Black and African-American subgroup, African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in this country are the lowest performing subgroup inside of that category. 
with respect to wealth, with respect to education, with respect to income, with respect to employment. And so that's what we expect to see, that we are among the lowest performing groups outcome-wise. And then that also then helps us actually design programs and services, solutions, and in interventions that actually address those specific material conditions. Now, you believe that collecting lineage data on descendants of enslaved people is essential to affirm the identity and personhood of yeah. African Americans. Well, can you explain that? This is really something special here in California, this particular uh, way and, and approach that we're going to do to actually start to change the way we collect data, because it actually affirms who we are as a people. It says to us that our government sees us that our, our government recognizes us as a specific group of people, not just inside of a category with other groups of people who may look like us, but don't share our history. Don't share the history of 256 or 270 years of forced labor, and then 100 so years of legal segre segregation. And then from then until now, whatever you want to call this. And then finally, it enables us to actually do something about what we see as our lived reality, the first of which is actually to do reparations. But there's a lot more we can do specifically for us as a specific group of people. Yeah, this new data collection is, I know, a big victory for your organization. And your organization yeah. is the all-volunteer Coalition oh, yeah. for a Just and Equitable <laughs> California. How closely have you been working with the Reparations Task Force and what's your next objective? Yeah, thanks for those questions. So we helped get the final version of the law written. We actually helped get the law passed. Originally also, we were at every single committee hearing and, and, and speaking with legislators. We helped set up the signing ceremony that the governor attended. We we worked to help get individuals recommended to be selected to the task force. Actually, the chair of the task force, Camilla Moore, is a former CJEC organizer. And we've continued our work since the task force sat in 2021 to do community outreach. We've, we've held probably now close to 20 community meetings, town halls, and listening sessions since the effort started. Next steps for, for us uh, on the data collection front we want to one work to successfully implement this the the data collection will start in 2024 we want this to expand to every single city in the state of california we want every county in the state of california also to, to start collecting data this way we want the federal government to see us as a model and see us as an example and update the 2030 census to actually have a specific category for African-Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. And then on the California reparations front, we're gonna to continue to work with the California reparations task force in its, you know, which, is, which is going into its final year of work to help them develop the forms of rep reparations and to put together what will be the nation's first state reparations plan, which should be released next summer. I've been speaking with Chris Lodgson, the lead organizer of the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California. And Chris, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. Padres fans were blindsided recently by news that superstar shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. tested positive for a banned steroid. Major League Baseball responded quickly with a whopping 80-game suspension for Tatis. In the immortal baseball vernacular, say it ain't so, Joe, there is more to the scandal. It brings light to a major issue with ballplayers from the Dominican Republic who have accounted for 80% of suspensions involving performance-enhancing drug use since 2017. Joining me now with more is San Diego sports writer Mark Ziegler. Welcome back to Midday Edition. Glad to be here. Mark, give us some background on this scandal. What exactly did Tatis test positive for, and for what did he say he used it? So the substance that uh, appeared in his urine is called clostebol. It's a banned anabolic agent, sort of a synthetic testosterone that is muscle building and was used back in the 1960s and 1970s as part of the steroid cocktail of the East German doping machine. The tricky part is that clostebol also appears as an active ingredient in some skin lotions, ointments, creams, sprays that are not available over the counter in the United States, but are available over the counter in pharmacies in places like Italy and Brazil and Central America and South America. And athletes have shown that they have tested positive for clostebol from what they claim is inadvertent use. Fernando Tatis Jr. said he had ringworm on his neck and his father has said it was from a haircut. And uh, he took a spray that contained clostebol and that resulted in his positive test. Most fans were blindsided by the news, but was it really a surprise? Well, it's never a surprise to me. I've covered doping since uh, I covered the Olympics, my first Olympics in 1988 in Seoul, South Korea. And as many people remember, that was when Ben Johnson, Canadian sprinter, tested positive for a steroid after breaking the world record in the 100 meters and was uh, stripped of his gold medal. And ever since then, I've covered doping in sport, and I'm never surprised when an elite athlete tests positive because, I, you know, th these drugs work, uh, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, they do work and they do increase and enhance performance. And many, many athletes avail themselves of, of these substances, and that's one of the secrets to their success. Tatis is Dominican and part of a growing number of Dominican players that have been involved in doping scandals in recent years. Why is this number so disproportionately high? You know, it's a complicated question and answer, but, you know, the Dominican Republic is a very, very poor island nation, not as poor as, as Haiti, and that, that's who they share Hispaniola with, uh, but it's still very, very poor. And these kids grow up without much hope in abject poverty, and baseball seen as a way out. And to get out, you have to be very good and sign a contract with a major league team, which even if it's for $50,000 is generational money to some families there. And so you have this system of street agents that take these players at a very young age, train them, house them, feed them, clothe them, and get them into an academy that gets them on the path to sign a major league contract. Well, these agents take a cut of their future earnings. And so with money at stake, they realize the drugs work and they get these kids on drugs at very early age, some knowingly, some unknowingly. And there's just this culture of doping. On top of that, these substances are readily available in Dominican Republic, some of them over the counter, some of them in corner markets. 
Uh, there's been reports of that. Journalists have gone down there and just walked in and bought these substances uh, without a prescription. And even if you need a prescription, they're very easy to get sort of a fake prescription. And so they're just very easy to get the drugs and there's a culture for taking them. And those two things, plus the poverty, add up to a, a really bad situation. So it's pressure from both sides, family and the agents who ultimately will benefit from these players. Absolutely. And the kids are sort of the victims here. But, you know, one of the nefarious sides of doping is that once you start taking steroids, if you don't take them in, you know, with a lot of supervision where you cycle on and cycle off, what happens is your body's natural production of testosterone, which is for males, obviously have it more than females, but it's your body's natural steroid that builds muscles and strength and endurance and, and many things that shuts off because the body senses there's another steroid in it. I always equate it to the, the thermostat in your house. If you have the central heat on and you light a fire in the fireplace and your living room starts to heat up, the, the thermostat senses that shuts off the heater. And this is what happens in your body with natural testosterone. And so these players, even if they want to stop after a certain point, their body stops producing testosterone. And it takes sometimes years to restart it, kickstart it. And you need a very experienced doctor to do that. And so these kids all of a sudden have no testosterone in their system and just almost are trapped and they have to keep taking it. And so that's one of the, the, the real evil sides of this. And, and this is a sort of vicious cycle for many of these uh, athletes. So given the proportions, is there more oversight for steroid use among Dominican Republic players? Well, I, I don't know if they're tested any more often than players from other countries in, in Major League Baseball. They, you know, Major League Baseball's tried to do some things. They've gone down there and they've tried to implement more testing and, and educational seminars. There's PSAs on TV when they showed uh, the Dominican League games, but none of it seems to be working. Now, once a player is caught in Major League Baseball, they are subject to many more tests. So to answer your question in that way, yes, Dominican players maybe are more tested just because they're more prior offenders and, and they're subject to many more tests. And, you know, and that leads to maybe many more positive tests as well. You kind of touched on this, but we know about the suspension. What else does MLB have to say about all this? The guidelines of their, of their anti-doping program sort of preclude them from making lots of statements and discussing these other than we issued a suspension. They know it's an issue. They've known it's an issue for decades now. And in, in 2009, they sent you know former Padres CEO, Sandy Alderson, who's president of the New York Mets, and an entourage down to the Dominican to investigate this and report back. And he reported back you know, very candidly that, that doping is a very serious problem. And these street agents with Boscones, as they're called there, are, are part of the problem in facilitating these drugs. They came up with a few steps to try to mitigate it, and none of them really have worked. Uh, I think the doping culture is just as robust as it ever has been, and I think the numbers sort of speak to that. I think they're going to have to readdress this, and I'm not sure what the answer is because uh, you know maybe you're going to have to solve poverty first before you can solve the drug problem. I've been speaking with San Diego sports writer Mark Ziegler, and you can read his column on baseball's ongoing doping issues in the San Diego Union-Tribune. Mark, thank you. My pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.